It's Tuesday, March 14th, and whatever you do, the federal government doesn't want you using the B word. Start here. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. After federal intervention to save multiple banks, the president insists this isn't a bailout. This fund is a pile of cash that banks pay into already. So who's paying depositors their money back, and could this all change the plan to fight inflation? Meanwhile, the White House is losing capital with climate activists. The complaints about it are that it will lock in the use of fossil fuels for the lifetime of this project. Drill Biden Drill, the newly approved plan that is roiling Alaska. And as the pandemic enters year four, some feel more at risk than ever. By what metric are we post-COVID? Increasingly vocal groups are asking, what's really changed? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. What I've learned in the last few days is just how specialized some regional banks can be. Like Silicon Valley Bank, the one you've been hearing about, it's not just a name. To many people in Silicon Valley, this was the bank for the tech world. You wanted a loan, you went here. Which makes a certain kind of sense, right? In places where one industry is more dominant than others, those banks are going to work a lot more with people in that industry. A bank in coal country might have more money tied up in the energy sector. And yet when that industry has a crisis, the way a lot of tech companies have been in crisis mode lately, it can hit that bank extra hard. In an age of banking digitally, customers can talk to each other, whip up fear, and then demand their money back all at once, prompting the kind of bank run we saw in the Valley. Well, this weekend, while you might have been hearing about Silicon Valley Bank, other banks were hearing from their customers. Signature Bank has $110 billion in assets, and the people responsible for managing that money have all been fired. Signature Bank in New York is one of the favorite banks of Broadway productions. In the wake of the SBB collapse, Signature customers started wondering, could we be next? They started withdrawing money at a feverish pace. By Sunday night, that bank, too, had gone under. The New York State Department of Financial Services took possession of a New York chartered bank known as Signature last night. So on Sunday night, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department came forward to say every person who deposited money into SVB or Signature Bank would be made whole. But that prompted questions of its own. Chief among them is after the lessons of the Great Recession, are finance people again getting rewarded for bad behavior? I want to briefly speak about what's happening in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Well, yesterday, before banks could even open again, President Biden decided to make an early morning address. His message was, we've contained the problem and that this is not in any sense a bailout. There are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. Let's go to ABC's Elizabeth Schulze, who covers economics and has been covering the federal response to this. Elizabeth, wait, so... Was this a bailout or not? Kind of like if it looks like a bailout and walks like a bailout. It's a question, Brad. And the official response from government regulators is that no, this is not a bailout. And and here is their explanation why. While customers are getting bailed out by these actions, the bank's shareholders are not. So in other words, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, they are no longer publicly traded stocks. If you were an investor who owned that stock, you are out of luck. So you will be able to transact business as usual. Your accounts are safe. Your online portals are active. You'll be able to wire and do business as usual. 
who did get a break are the customers, like those startups who we heard from, who basically needed to access their money so that they could make payroll. We have an electrical business, and we have to meet payroll this afternoon. Um, I asked whether checks will clear, and they said yes. And they said they needed those funds for day-to-day expenses. So this move, officials say, was to protect the account holders, not to kind of revive, bail out these banks and its leadership that helped get the banks in the mess in the first place. I'm sorry. We are here to protect the depositor. Whenever there's issues with the economy, we're here to stabilize as much as we can. But so I understand, like, we don't want to reward risky behavior, like you're investing in the bank and it didn't do well. We're not rewarding you because you lost your money. But isn't it essentially risky behavior if you're somebody who hears, oh, your money's insured up to $250,000 and you go, great, I'm going to put $8 million in there. Like, that's risky behavior. Why do those people need to get their money back? Right. You're touching on a really important topic here, and it's something that economists call moral hazard. It's basically the idea that investors... Once they know they are protected, they might start doing riskier things because they don't think that there are going to be repercussions. But the short answer as to why they took that step to cover more than the $250,000 that are typically protected was to send a message that they did not want to see future bank runs. So basically by saying... If you have money in a bank, even if it's more than the $250,000 that's typically insured, that money is going to be safe. Don't run out and try to withdraw funds. Don't create more panic in the system, which could then have more banks fail. How much that messaging is going to work is really still an important question, Brad, because we did see the share prices of some other smaller regional banks drop in trading yesterday, even after these actions were announced. Shares of First Republic down about 60% last check. PacWest, Comerica. There is still a lot of uncertainty about how this is going to play out and some questions about the balance sheets of other banks. But really, the regulators are trying to send this signal that your deposits are safe and that's their priority number one is to keep the banking system safe. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. What are the politics of that about to look like? Because it almost seemed like President Biden, he was speaking to the banks, he was speaking to Americans who have bank accounts, but he also seemed to be speaking to other politicians who were already blasting this decision. Yeah, unsurprisingly, swift criticism from lawmakers, really on both sides of the aisle, who are calling this a bailout. They say at the end of the day, these firms are getting protected because of action that was taken from federal regulators, drawing parallels to what we saw in 2008, even though these actions are different in themselves in in the ways we just talked about. So the president is really trying to get out in front of this criticism. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Let me repeat that. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. The argument there is that the money that is going to be used to pay out the depositors for Silicon Valley Bank, for Signature Bank, is coming from an insurance fund at the FDIC. Okay, this sounds like so technical, but just bear with me. Mm-hmm. This insurance fund at the FDIC, a Treasury official, tells us that that has more than $100 billion in cash in it. How did that cash get there in the first place? It got there from bank fees. So basically, banks are already paying these fees into this fund. It's part of how the operation works. Oh, it's not like a line on the budget that taxpayers pay for. That's right. This fund is a pile of cash that banks pay into already. And I've been talking to regulators who say that if for some reason that $100 billion runs out, which they don't expect it to, 
those regulators can then go back and collect more fees from the banks. They're not going to go to the taxpayers to get more money. So they're really trying to push the point that these bank fees are how this is getting funded. There is not going to be an additional expense for you and me for the taxpayer. Well, and and so, Elizabeth, I feel like it's (laughs) everyone's trying to be very clear that no one should panic. Mm -hmm. And yet... Should there be cause for panic? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. are, are there fundamental problems here that extend beyond Silicon Valley Bank? And what is next for banks across the country? Right. I think there's a little bit of a discrepancy in the messaging that we're hearing on this. And that on the one hand, you have top regulators, you have the Treasury Secretary coming out and saying this is not a bailout. The system is safe. There is no, you know, we've contained the contagion risk. On the other hand, These regulators took the extraordinary step of designating both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank as systemic risks to the financial system. That's something that hasn't been designated since 2008. So unsurprisingly, that is going to create some uncertainty about is the system really as safe as they're saying it is. Since like Friday when news broke from the Silicon Valley Bank, I rushed over here and I withdrew all my money except for one dollar. They were entrusted with our money and didn't do the job that they should have done. On top of that, you have the underlying reality that interest rates have gone up at this very fast pace. That's part of what got Silicon Valley Bank into this mess in the first place. And the Fed had been planning to raise rates even more as part of this fight against inflation that we've talked about before. So now the Fed finds itself in a position where it wants to keep raising interest rates to bring down inflation, but it's worried about how those higher interest rates are impacting banks' balance sheets. Wait, is there, are you saying there's a chance that the Federal Reserve doesn't end up raising these rates, the, doing these rate hikes we've been hearing about? There are high-profile economists like Goldman Sachs that are now saying the Fed won't raise interest rates next week, as they've been expected to, because of this fallout that we've seen from these banks' collapse. And that is a huge change in their view that really happened just in the last couple of days because of what we've been seeing from these failures. And then later today, we'll see these inflation reports. And you got to imagine, if it's a big inflation number, again, the Fed would be like, we want to raise rates, but should we? All right, Elizabeth Schulze, thank you. Thanks so much, Brad. Next up on Start Here, in the oil rumble that is Alaska, did President Biden just make a heel turn? We're back in a bit. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. 
We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. Now, if you want to talk about threading a political needle, banking is not the only spot where President Biden is vulnerable right now. He had campaigned on the idea of ending a lot of Trump immigration policies only to reportedly be considering putting some of them back in place to a lesser extent. Would you close down it the oil industry? Way, I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would transition. It is a big statement because I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes. He also portrayed himself as the green president. It was his bill he signed more than any other president in history that showed a dedication to green jobs and fighting climate change. But that was last year and perhaps a different political moment because yesterday, in a move that infuriated many of his supporters on the left, Biden cleared the way for oil drilling projects in some of this country's most untouched land. ABC Stephanie Ebbs covers climate and energy. Stephanie, what is this decision from Biden? What's the project? Yeah, Brad. So the Willow Project is a significantly large oil development on the north slope of Alaska. As you said, this is largely undeveloped area near the village of Nuiqsut in northern Alaska. And this ConocoPhillips project is set now to develop hundreds of thousands of gallons of oil every year in a development that that will take some time to to get going. But it's a very significant uh, fossil fuel project in Alaska. Well, and he didn't make a big speech about this, right? He did not seem outwardly excited. But we've already heard from people on social media using hashtags like Stop Willow. I do not understand how people have not gotten it by now. Profit does not come over the planet and over people. Does this fly in the face of Biden's pledges to slow climate change? That's the complaint that a lot of climate groups and environmental advocates are saying, is that President Biden on the campaign trail promised no new drilling on public lands. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. Which is is exactly what he's doing. Now, the courts have ruled that he didn't really have full control over that situation. And and that's kind of what happened here. Mm. The complaints about it are that it will lock in the use of fossil fuels for the lifetime of this project. Presumably, the oil produced by Willow will be burned and will be used, and that will generate a significant amount of greenhouse gas emissions. The estimate from the environmental impact statement is about 240 million metric tons of carbon dioxide over a 30-year lifetime of this project. And the reason environmentalists are so concerned and calling this a, quote, carbon bomb is that they're saying that's that's really additional emissions that we 
can't afford. We're deeply disappointed by the announcement of the Willow Project. I spoke with Christy Goldfuss. She's the chief policy officer at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And and she made the point, you know, this is some of the most pristine area in the country. This project will be significantly disruptive to this area. If we were going to drill our way to national security, we would have done it a long time ago. And in response to some of the arguments that more domestic drilling will help improve our national security, get us off of Russian gas and oil. You know, she kind of argued that that doesn't really hold water. If we could have done that, we would have done that by now. We're better off investing in renewables than we are fossil fuels. We had limited decision space, but we focused on how to reduce the project's footprint and minimize its impacts to people and to wildlife. The Biden administration is arguing that their hands were pretty much tied Willow was approved in 2020 under the Trump administration, but the administration kind of came out of this saying, you know, we have substantial concerns about the project. They did scale it down a little bit. They're allowing three pads of drilling instead of five to reduce some of those impacts. But they they kind of said it was approved before they went through all of the process. They thought it would be very vulnerable to being overturned in court if they were to overtly deny this project when it had gone through and been approved in the past. Yeah, and you had this kind of looming question over whether this was Biden trying to be more of a political centrist leading up to an election year. The Biden administration is saying that's not what happened. They were put in a tough spot. And as if to prove it, they also put forward a plan right before this was unveiled that would protect 16 million acres of Alaskan land to future drilling. We'll see what happens next. Stephanie Ebbs, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. This weekend marked the three-year point since the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. The number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. Since then, we've lost more than a million Americans, the vast majority in years one and two. And yet, despite this progress, we cannot seem as a country to get very far below 2,000 deaths a week. For much of the last year, we've seen ebbs and flows, but there's been this baseline level of death. Instead, you now hear more and more officials describe a new normal, one in which COVID is constantly circulating, in which many people have some built-in immunity because of vaccines and prior infections. Major precautions, we're told, are no longer needed to protect us like they once were. Even so-called blue states have dropped masking requirements, including in hospitals. We're shifting our, our requests to hospitals and other healthcare facilities to follow the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidance and to come up with their own plan for when masking may be required for their staff. Welcome to what some are calling the great moving on, which, if you're comfortable getting COVID every now and then, might not seem like a huge deal. But to others who can't afford to get sick, the last year of this has really become the most alarming, isolating, and some say dangerous for them, of the pandemic. I want to turn to Stephanie Tate, a disability advocate who, like many of her colleagues, has become more and more vocal as this pandemic has worn on. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Can I just ask, what has this pandemic been like for you? Whew, what a loaded giant question. Um, so in the beginning, the pandemic was the sensation of seeing the freight train coming and like desperately trying to tell people around me to stop making a joke of the whole thing and waiting to see if anybody would ever care. And then there was this wave of relief when we saw, you know, folks like Tom Hanks got COVID and all of a sudden everybody was like, oh, this is a thing. And suddenly it was, we're all in this together. You know, we're going to focus on vaccines. We're going to take the precautions. We're going to do the things we need to do. And yet the longer this pandemic went on, the more we went through various versions of the same 
cycle. We would do a bad wave or a bad variant. It would be really bad. And then right after it, all of a sudden, it would be maybe we can relax this. Maybe it wasn't as bad as we're remembering it. And suddenly I was right back to day one, right? Except now there isn't even a cycle anymore. It seems like the majority of people have just gone back to 2019 of there's this freight train coming. We don't see it. We don't care. For the first time, I feel just sort of completely alone in it. I don't I don't expect another wave of we're all in this together to ever really come again. Do you feel like you're more at risk than the average person? In my case, I have a pre-existing heart condition. I also had a pre-existing kidney issue. And I take a medication for my arthritis, which makes me immune deficient. So it's sort of a combination of the perfect storm of this is not something I can afford to get in terms of acute infection. But the bigger problem for me is really the long-term risks. So A, I don't want to make it worse, but more than that, B, I don't want this life for my kids. So even though I'm the one that's technically high risk in our family, I feel more protective of them right now than I do of me because I don't want this life for them. I don't want them living half their life in a bed because they're too physically exhausted to get up and function. And yet everything around us is far more relaxed and far less protections than there have ever been. So For us, it's really the most dangerous period that we've ever entered. Before, if we had decided to loosen up and protect ourselves less and go more places, at least a certain percentage of other people would be wearing masks, or maybe they'd have required testing, or maybe the CDC would have been saying, hey, if you're positive, you need to stay home. But none of that stuff's true anymore. So you can imagine how bewildering it is that, you know, two years ago, I was saying we can't do X, Y, Z because it's not safe. And now I'm being told it's actually less precautions than it was back then. But now you should go out and do those things because it's just time. <laughs> it's interesting to me that you said you feel like people are living in 2019 and not 2023. Like that, Because I, I hear people describe the post-COVID world. Post-COVID, we're doing this. You almost sound like people are living their pre-COVID lives in a world where COVID is still circulating. Well, because they are. Like, by what metric are we post-COVID, right? I mean, even the CDC's count, which by all estimates... Any expert you ask will tell you it's an undercount because we're not including home tests. People don't test anymore. You don't test, you don't see it. But even by their official counts, we're still losing what was last week. They said 1,800 people. Just last week, 1,800 COVID deaths were added for the week. And that's just the official ones. So by what metric is it over? Because that doesn't sound over to me at all. So it's not really possible to be living in 2023 as much as You have to be living in 2019. You have to be living in a world where COVID never existed in the first place. Anything else is just, it's it's denial of reality. (laughs) Well, and so it makes me think a couple obvious questions. So let me just shout them at you. Because one would be, why can't you wear a mask since you have higher risks and hope that protects you? Because I've seen you say, yeah, no, if there's a ton of people spraying COVID in the air for an extended period, this aerosolized disease is now all around me. That's a lot of responsibility to put on one mask, which makes sense. But the other thing seems kind of even more fundamental is like to many people at this point of the pandemic, there's risk and reward here, right? The risk is I get COVID. Maybe it's bad. Maybe it's not. The reward, though, is I get to live my life the way I want to live. Like I get to go to an indoor restaurant again. If everyone's risks aren't the same, if someone hasn't had Lyme disease or isn't on chemo who can't risk a flu... Public places have never been safe spaces for all these people, right? So so why isn't this the same thing as it used to be? You do your thing, I'll do mine. Yes, it was never fully safe for immunocompromised people in a lot of spaces. And one of the hopes I had in those early periods of COVID that I described was 
maybe we are finally going to rethink some things. Like, why haven't we been masking in hospitals? That kind of just seems like a no-brainer. Obviously, we'll keep that. But we didn't. It all went away. So yes, you're right. To an extent, it was never fully safe. And I thought we might have a chance to fix it, but we kind of just jumped over it. But the second part of it that I think people are missing is that the reason I say you're living like it's 2019 is because in 2019, COVID, as we know it right now, SARS-2 did not exist. And in order to say- That's fundamentally different from the flu or something. Yeah. In order to say it's all the same, you have to think that getting SARS-2 is literally the same as getting the flu or cold. And the statistics show it's just not. It's far deadlier. What kind of reactions do you get from people when you press them, essentially, like, please don't move on? Uh, for the most part, whether on or offline, it really doesn't matter. It's worse on Twitter, but it's both now. We've reached a point where people are not shy about labeling all of this as mental illness, right? At this point, if you care about COVID, if you're trying to prevent infection, you have an anxiety problem. Like people accuse you of having a mental illness because you're saying, I, I don't want to get COVID? Yes. Heck, now we have Eric Adams in New York saying people who mask when they come into stores might be criminals. So you should be suspicious of them. Like it's gotten more and more overt and pushed it to the point where it just empowers people to think there's something wrong with someone who's still masking at this point. So it's not just that it's hard to be the odd one out. It's specifically that now... People are trying to stop us from being the odd one out, right? It's hard enough to feel lonely or feel like you're the only one that still cares. But this isn't that anymore. This is like people actively trying to stop us from taking our precautions or convince us out of them. And I got to say, when we started this whole pandemic thing, I never dreamed that it would get to that point. I know the word gets thrown a lot around, but this is actually what gaslighting means, right? When people try to tell you that the reality that you're experiencing isn't real. It's hard to explain to people what it feels like to be gaslit, not by one person, not by an abuser, but by almost everybody around you, by society as a whole. When every single day, every voice around you says you're crazy, I can't think of a single person that wouldn't eventually start doubting themselves and think, is there something wrong with me? Am I missing something? And it's incredibly disorienting. And I got to imagine, like, the lows. If the issue is being gaslit by society and then that becoming an isolating thing, that the lows become that much lower because you get much more isolated feeling. Well, you have to add to it that effectively, for those of us that are high risk, we're being told in no uncertain terms every single day that our lives don't really matter. That, that you know... When, when death numbers got high initially, it was, yeah, but those are old people or those are people with pre-existing conditions, right? Like, I'm sorry, it's great news that only people like me are dying. And yeah, that's going to affect your mental health to every day. Look at the people around you and consistently see this dehumanizing message that your life, your ability to exist and survive this pandemic is honestly worth less to me than eating dinner in an Applebee's. How do you not internalize that? How do you not wonder if you matter at all anymore? Or what's the point of living in a society that how, how do you even plan for a future to reintegrate fully into that world, right? Do I want to reintegrate into a world that thinks my life is worth less 
than a blooming onion at the outback. Like that's, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't discuss this that often, but I've seen this up close. I have a wife who's got lupus and we've literally spent nights together crying because while everyone else is going on trips, she's petrified of sitting within coughing distance of somebody on a plane, right? Like meeting up with people's kids feels scary because they're always sick with something who knows that they got COVID. And the day that hospitals in New York State said they would no longer require people to mask, I just had to hold her while she described not being able to visit these places where she literally has to go to get better. And it felt very, very low and scary and depressing. And I guess I'm wondering how you in this position keep going on. Man, I wish I had a very clear answer to that question because I ask myself that question pretty much every day right now. Right. In the, in the beginning of the pandemic, right, there was there was always a goal, right? If we could just live like this until if we could live like this until vaccines. And then it was if we could live like this until transmission was under control, right? There were always sort of goals to get to. I don't have one of those anymore. If you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said, "Oh, yeah, you know, a truly neutralizing vaccine and transmission numbers." Uh, I've reached a point where I'm just not convinced I'm going to see any of that ever let alone in this decade. But so then the question is, what do you think should be done? If you think no, nobody's going to convince themselves to do anything, are there action items at this point where you're like, this should be done, this should be done? Or is it just kind of like, I guess I'm other for the rest of my life? I mean, that's the tough dichotomy every single day, right? What we don't want to do is be exactly what everyone claims people like me are. And that's a doomer, right? And the irony when people call people like me a doomer is that it's those of us that are still pushing for things like masks, that are pushing for things like better research on upper UVC and other forms of air filtration and how to better improve our ventilation so that masks are less necessary down the road, right? People that are pushing steps like that are the opposite of doomers. <laughs> We're the ones that have some kind of hope for a future. If anything, to me, living like you're in 2019, that's doomerism. That's accepting there is no hope. It's all just going to be like this forever. So who cares? Throw in the towel. And I'm just not here for it. Really helpful perspective. Uh, Stephanie Tate, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for talking to me. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, it's annoying to be with someone who won't ask for directions, especially when you're on top of a mountain. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. It's home to some of the highest, most remote peaks in the world. If you're looking for solitude, this is the place. But in Nepal, there's now a buddy system. 
I just returned from the Annapurna Circuit, which is in the Annapurna Conservation Area. That's Dan Purdy. He's a professional hiking guide with wildland trekking here in the States. He likes hiking so much that he travels to places like Nepal in his free time to do it more. But earlier this month, the Nepali government announced that at its highest mountain ranges, including the Himalayas and Mount Everest, foreign nationals must hire an accredited local guide for any mountain over a certain height. You are no longer allowed to hike alone. You must have a local guide with you. The rule used to be you got the option. Dan says this change makes sense. In fact, he's seen foreigners show up with no clue on how to keep themselves safe. We hiked up and over the Thrungla Pass, which is about 17,500 feet. And we were shocked and appalled at the number of inexperienced trekkers that we saw up there. He even found himself giving out water to people who hadn't packed enough. Locals, he said, are constantly keeping an eye on folks who come across as clueless. And yet, he's going to be bummed. I was hiking with my girlfriend, so there were just two of us, but we did the hike without a guide, so solo in the sense... You're one of these people that, like, doesn't... That elects not to. I am one of these people, yes. And we did a 20 to 25-day hike without a guide. He says he loves exploring without an itinerary, without being hustled along by someone keeping the pace, who may or may not be any fun. For someone like me, I'm not the most sociable person, so it's like another person to have a conversation with. And yet, Nepali residents have grown more and more frustrated with dangerous situations on the mountainsides. Several years ago, this culminated in a brawl on Mount Everest between Sherpas and foreign climbers who allegedly barreled past them as they tried to enforce safety measures. But notably here, this is not just about Everest. In fact, it's the lesser-known places that are quickly becoming magnets for outsiders. Part of that is there's been a boom of road building in Nepal. So folks who have very minimal experience hiking or trekking or going up in the altitude, they can be driven all the way up to 10 or 12,000 feet and suddenly be in the middle of the Himalayan mountains. It's also an issue of jobs. Previously, if a Nepali town was cut off from the outside world, residents might think, you know, you don't bother us, we won't bother you, whatever. But with new infrastructure leading to new mountaineers coming through, these towns don't have a choice. They figure the least we can get out of this is some guaranteed work. Dan says he'll miss looking up at the stars, just him and his traveling companion, but he'll also relish the opportunity to rely on local guides. Towns where no one speaks English might suddenly seem more accessible. If you're going to force him to make a friend, he says, that's a risk he's willing to take. At one point he told me, like, we're on this trek, we're looking down cliff faces at 2,000 feet. I thought he was going to say 200, and my fingers were going numb. So I guess I'm not going to be joining him on these hikes anytime soon. Start here tomorrow, hit that follow button for a new episode every day. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.